The first passage in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in men forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, where the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made men on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out men whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The next section is chapter 7, verse 11 to 8 3. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creep on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, and the waters rose and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. 
The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. Uh, next passage, 8 verse 13 to 22. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and look and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping things that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went up by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse again the ground because of the man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The last passage, chapter 9, verse 8 to 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again sh shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are our Heavenly Father, uh, and that uh, in your uh, eternal uh, goodness, uh, you are love, uh, sharing this uh, relationship forever with your Son and with the Spirit. And we thank you that in being created in your image, you have created for us to be in relationships, to be in family. And so today, especially as uh, the world celebrates uh, Mother's Day, um, yeah, we do want to stop and remember and thank you for the, the mothers and the motherly figures in our lives. Um, we give you thanks that even in our sinful imperfection, uh, that uh, being a mother in so many ways shows us what love and sacrifice and service looks like. And so for those times we've experienced that kind of goodness uh, and love and joy uh, from mothers and our motherly figures, we give you great thanks. And we give you thanks for their thankless work. And we thank you for their sacrifice. And we thank you that so often they model to us uh, what the love of Christ looks like. And so we give you thanks on this day, <clears throat> and we pray that you'll help us not just on this day, but on every day to be able to find ways to show appreciation and thanks, and that we might be also serve uh, those who are mothers in our lives. We also acknowledge that on a day like today, uh, it is filled with uh, heartache and pain uh, as those uh, experience motherliness uh, in an un unhappy way. 
And so we pray that you be especially close to them, those who are unable to have child, those who have lost children, uh, those who have had difficult experiences of being a mother, those who have lost mothers, and various other ways in which motherhood has been hard. And so we commit them into your loving hands uh, as we look forward to um, the new heavens and new earth where there will be no pain and no sadness and no tears. But for now, we pray for your comfort. As we now come before your word again, we pray that your spirit will be uh, powerfully at work in our hearts to help us to hear your word as we hear this uh, devastating diagnosis of the human condition and as we hear about your judgment that befell the world and will come again as we hear about your amazing grace, your astounding mercy, your commitment to save. Uh, Open our hearts to respond in faith and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Noah and the Flood, I I think undoubtedly it's probably one of the top three most well-known stories of the Bible, right? I guess depending on who you ask, it may be position one, two, or three, right? Super well-known. Uh, righteous Noah builds an ark, right? And then we sing the song, uh, the animals went in two by two, hurrah, hurrah, uh, the elephant and the kangaroo, uh, and they all went to the ark to get out of the rain. And then finally, pretty rainbow, right? Pretty rainbow at the end of it all, right? It's found in every kid's Bible. Uh, no kid's Bible I've ever read anywhere uh, has left out right, the, uh, the Noah's ark story, uh, the flood. Uh, it's made into so many songs with all these cheery and catchy tunes, uh, that the kids love to sing, and right, the adults can't help but hum along uh, while they're washing the dishes, maybe. Uh, any story that involves animals, right? Puppies, kittens, right? It's so easy to love, isn't it? So much cuteness. Um, and so, um, you know, when you think about the story, you, 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 you think, oh, is it a happy story? Or is it actually a sad story, right? When you stop and really think about this story, is it a happy story or is it a, a sad story? The children's Bible representation of uh, the flood and Noah, I think it really masks the reality of just how tragic and horrible, horrific this story really is. Perhaps uh, the adult artworks over the centuries have portrayed this reality more accurately. So uh, Gustave Doré uh, had this drawing called The Deluge in uh, the, uh, 19, uh, the 1866 edition, illustration edition of the Bible. Uh, And here in in this picture, it shows a humans and tiger doomed by the flood, futilely attempting to save their children and their cubs. This tragic picture, moments before the floodwaters go uh, above even the highest point on the world. Uh, Another painting by Ivan Ivazovsky in 1894, simply called The Flood. Same thing. Probably the last moments, isn't it? And you can imagine almost a scene of floating bodies, human and animal, right, littered out through the water. This is not child's play. This won't make it into the kid's Bible. Now, we need to let the tragedy and the horror sink in. When you read the story, don't think cute and catchy tunes and pretty pictures. It is not pretty. It is tragic and horrible. And the tragedy and horror actually begins and the human heart, squarely in the human condition. That's where this tragedy and this horror film begins. See, the human condition, our human condition, is what led to the horror of the flood. But like a light that shines out of darkness, we see the grace of God not only in saving Noah and his family, we see the utter grace of God in his unyielding commitment 
to his creation right, that has been so broken and spoiled by the human condition. And even though man and woman, young and old, people from all over the world may abandon God and live godless lives, God will not abandon us or his world. He will save all those who come to him by faith. Now, in a passage this long, <clears throat> I won't be covering the details, but focusing on the clear main points. Now, there are, if any of you are students of the Bible, you know that there are a lot of debatable points right, within these four chapters. Uh, and I'll let you and others have a debate, have a chat about those on your own time. Uh, I want to just make the clear points that come out of these four chapters. Now, the first clear point uh, is the devastating diagnosis that God gives about the human condition. So let's begin at verse 5, right? Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then down in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, we've seen sin come into the world through Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, and then it just kept spreading, didn't it? To, to Cain and then to Lamech, it kept getting worse. Cain's murder, Lamech's bloodthirstiness. And now, when we get to the time of Noah, some hundreds and hundreds of years later, the escalation of human sinfulness is both extensive, that is, all people all over the world, and intensive. Every intention within the heart of each person was evil all of the time. Right? In other words, sin and wickedness uh, has not only infected every person in the world, Sin and wickedness has infected the whole person, the whole person. Now, the theologians call this the doctrine of total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that humans are as sinful as that we possibly can be. After all, we're not all Hitlers walking around, right? We're not as sinful as we possibly can be. Now, the common and helpful illustration uh, is that of a drop of poison that has been dripped into a glass of water. Right? It's not that the whole glass now is pure poison, uh, yet you can say that none of this glass is unpoisoned. Right? The whole glass isn't poison, but the whole bit of water, the whole, the whole of the water is not unpoisoned anymore. You see, everyone without exception is sinful. This we get, right? Everybody is sinful. But what we may not get so clearly is that every aspect of every person is also corrupted by sin. We can find sin in, in our thoughts and our attitudes, our motivations, our actions, our speech, our every relationship. Sin is always there. Right? Sin is, is poisoning every part of us. There's always something God denying, God dishonoring, something loveless, Something violent, something hurtful, something proud, something selfish, something self-serving. Something, often a lot of things, that taints and corrupts and stains all that we do and say and think. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That was God's devastating diagnosis of all humanity back in Noah's day, and sadly, things haven't changed since then. As we read on in the rest of scriptures, post-flood and on the New Testament, and our own experience of the world 
out there, the people around us, and within ourselves, I think we can affirm this reality. It cries out to the reality of the total depravity of man. Now, the extent and the intent of human sinfulness grieves God to the heart. Right? We see this in verse 6. Right, we see the verse, if you look at that, it, it grieves God right, right to the heart. Right? I don't know what view of God uh, it is that you have, that you carry around your head day by day, but perhaps you have a view of God who is a detached, you know, divine being, right, out there somewhere, uh, like far removed from reality, or, or a stone-cold tyrant, right, ready to unleash his wrath and anger on, on, on wrongdoers, right, to punish them and punish us. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. God gives this devastating diagnosis with deep sorrow right, in his heart. Deep sorrow in his heart. I'm not sure if you ever think about God as someone who grieves and is, and is deeply sad. He's not at all like a detached doctor giving a cold and clinical re- report to their client about their medical condition. Let's just wait here and see what's going on. Are we good? It's cold, isn't it? Is it cold or hot? One or the other. Anyway, God isn't cold. All right? God isn't cold. He's not a cold clinician right, giving some cold diagnosis to a client right, in his uh, very clinical rooms. He's more like a parent, right, broken-hearted, uh, watching their child straying further and further away, living a life of self-destruction, hurting other people and being hurt by other people. And perhaps on a day like today, Mother's Day, uh, the mothers in particular can feel the pain of seeing straying children. For God, the Creator, the Heavenly Father, the Lover, the depth of pain and grief is far greater. We must know that God's first response, His first response to our sin and wickedness is and always will be a response of love. A response of love. For only lovers grieve. For only lovers grieve. But God's sadness leads to God's judgment. This is the second response to our sin and wickedness. A judgment of pure moral justice. You have seen see this in verse 7 and verse 13, right? Now, for, for God to do simply nothing, he'd just be a well-meaning weakling, isn't it? For God to see all this corruption and sin and wickedness, for him to then do nothing about it and just feel sad, he would just be a weakling. No one having seen heinous crimes being committed uh, will be content to see criminals go scot-free and unpunished. Justice must be served, right? We cry out, right? Wrongs must be righted. Our just hearts cry out. And since all humanity have extensively and intensively turned their backs on their creator, then the judgment that is pure and moral and just has to also be extensive and intensive. And so God's judgment is this. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. I will make an end to all flesh. I will destroy the earth. Extensively, intensively, judgment against extensive and intensive sin. And this he will do as we come to see in the floods. But that's not all God God will do. It should shock us and surprise us that verse 8 is here. Now, we're so familiar with the story of Noah and the flood that, of course, we expect right, that there will be this uh, silver lining right, to this story, this, this happy news. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Out of the mass of sinful humanity, God gives grace to this one man and his family. Now, we shouldn't take this for granted, and we shouldn't take it as a given that God gives grace. Now, we mustn't be mistaken in thinking that Noah earned God's favor. Can you see that? He didn't say that he earned God's favor. He found it. He received it. He received a grace. Uh, we, we, we see that he is someone, um, and we might mistake that he earns God's favor because of the way he's described, right? He's talked about as being righteous and blameless in his generation. He was one who walked with the Lord. Now, these descriptions don't mean that Noah was perfect. He was, after all, still part of the devastating diagnosis that was given to all of the human, uh, all people, right, all over the world. In a way, you could say that he was the best of the bad bunch, right? He was the best of the bad bunch. Uh, to be righteous and blameless, though, in the Bible, to walk with the Lord is to be someone uh, who pursues righteousness, someone who overcomes their sin and tries to live for God. And this we see in Noah later on in the story, where he, he does trust God and obey all that God commands. He lives in the fear of the Lord. We see evidence of this through the story, but clearly he isn't perfect. The last bit of chapter 9, which we didn't read before, as you'll read on, we see that clearly, right, that Noah and his children, they're definitely not perfect. But God gave him grace, showed him favor. And by God's grace, Noah is given a means of salvation. The ark that God told him to build was a way for Noah and his family to escape, to live through the judgment Noah is given a promise of a fresh start. Now, the animals that Noah were together were provisions for a new life after judgment. So a life through judgment, a new life after judgment. The great grace of God is that the judgment is not a total deletion of creation and humanity, but in a way it's a reset, isn't it? It's like a reset. Now many of us um, know the importance of having to you know, restart our computers and devices uh, once in a while. If you don't do that, you ought to do that, right? Your PCs, your phones. I think it's really non-Apple products. Do Apple phones and computers need resets? Anyway, uh, we can have that debate another time. Uh, now, after once in a while, uh, after a long period of time, you may even do a full factory reset. Right? That's one of those buttons. But be careful because it will wipe everything and start again, okay? Now, why is that? Why is it that phones and devices need that? It's because, you know, after some time, after you use your computer or your device for a while, uh, you start getting apps running when they shouldn't. Uh, they start draining your battery and slowing things down and causing conflicts. Uh, files get corrupted. Programs glitch. Connections get conflicted. Now, that doesn't uh, do it for you because you're not a tech person. I'll give you another example, right? This one especially for the mums because they do all the cleaning in the home, apparently. Um, sometimes, they shouldn't, by the way. It's not your mum's job to clean the house. Your husbands need to help out too, right? Do it together. Okay, anyway, sometimes the house gets to a state where enough is enough, right? It's just a mess and a proper, brutal spring clean is needed. You've got to clear all the junk that's been accumulated. Uh, you've got to scrub off all that dirt and the grind that's been built up. You've got to fix up all the bits and pieces that have come into disrepair in the home. Right, you've got to get a fresh start with this spring clean. And I think the flood here comes not as a final judgment, but a, a judgment that resets. Right, it gives a fresh start. It stops the rot that halts the downward spiral of humanity, that cleanses out the old and gives a fresh start. And so we see that the flood, when it starts to get described, it's, a, it's more of a decreation and recreation event. It's a judgment, yes, but it's more of a reset than a deletion, isn't it? The language of chapter 7 shows us that it's a reversal of Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1, if you remember, can be broadly summarized as days 1 to 3, God forming the world, and then day 4 to 6 is God filling the world with life. And in the forming of the world, the, the waters above and below, they separate, and then land comes out from the waters below right, to form the earth. And then it's filled with animals and people. Now here in Genesis 7, we read that the waters, they burst out of the heavens, they rise up from the ground, swallowing up the land, right? It's a, it's a reversal. The flood continued, verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. You see, the created world is devolving back into its watery formlessness as at the beginning. And all that once filled the world, all the animals and humans, they are blotted out. And all flesh died that move on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swimming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days. You see, after 40 days and 40 nights of rain and 100 days where the floodwaters sat, the decreation process is complete. Right? This is the Lord's judgment. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, uh, we get one of those great but God statements in the Bible. Right, but God, chapter 8, verse 1. When you hear the word, but God, in the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's time to perk up because this is when you know God is about to do something to reverse right, the mess that we create. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, it's not that God you know, had forgotten Noah. You know, it's like you know, he's talking to his heavenly angels. Like, I haven't seen that guy Noah in a while. Where has he gone? <gasps> I left him in the boat with all the animals. It's not like God forgot, right? Now, when the Bible speaks about God remembering, it speaks about God acting on the promises that he has made. That's what he means when, it, when the Bible says God remembers. He hasn't, he's forgotten, but he's about to act on the promises that he has once made. And so God begins the recreation process. And once again, we're reminded of Genesis 1, right? The, the wind blows over the waters, the form of creation returns. The waters separate and the dry land emerges from the watery formlessness. And creation is once again filled as the animals of the ark come out of the boat as well as Noah and his family into this recreated, reset world. Now, and to Noah, God repeats and reaffirms the mission and purpose that was given to Adam right back in the beginning. Right? We see a, a renewing uh, of humanity. Chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you all, of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That instruction given to Adam and Eve, man and woman, right at the beginning, Genesis 1. And again, chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 7, we see this 
instruction, this purpose, this mission given to Noah and to his family. And so we see that Noah is the beginning of this new humanity, right? He who bears the image of God, given the privilege of doing God's work in the world. This truly is a reset, isn't it? A fresh start. But the big question is, the big worry is, how long will this last? How long will this last before there is a need for another reset? We're right to be worried, aren't we? Because given the story so far, what hope do we have that humanity will be able to reset and continue on in a good way? We're even more worried when we hear in chapter 8, verse 21, moments after Noah and his family have come out of the boat, that God's assessment of the human condition hasn't changed. There is evil in man's heart. You see, the humans that went into the boat are the same humans that came out of the boat still filled with corruption. It is with great relief, great relief then, that we hear the commitment that God gives to Noah, makes to Noah, to his offspring and to all of creation. I will read along with me from verse 21, right? Chapter 8, verse 21, second half of 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Jump down now to chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You see, with these words, we hear God give His utter commitment to the people uh, and the world that He has created. While this world remains, God will never destroy it again with another flood, with another reset. Now, notice very carefully that this is an entirely one-sided covenant, right? One-sided covenant. God will do it regardless of what man does or doesn't do. Now, there are other covenants later on where it is two-sided, bilateral, but this one is unilateral, one-sided. Whatever is it that humans will do, it doesn't matter, right? In this commitment, man has no part in it. God will do his part in being committed to his creation and to his people, What is truly amazing about this commitment is that God fully knows what humanity is like. He knows full well that man will continue to sin. Just as bugs will return to our devices the moment we turn it on, just as our home, the moment we finish spring clean, already the first million specks of dust will start, and all the grimy feet of the people living in the house will build up again, and there will be a mess within minutes, if not hours, of the spring clean. So will sin. Right? Within moments of this reset, sin enters, as we see at the end of chapter 9. The outer corruption it has been cleansed. Creation does get a fresh start through a righteous, blameless man. But they will all succumb to sin and corruption again. Within moments. 
yet God is committed. Yet God remains committed to Noah and to his offspring and to all creation. God is utterly committed. Isn't that amazing? Now, what does all this mean for us? We are in our implication section now. What does all this mean for us? Now, firstly, we must know that the human condition hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Sin is still extensive and intensive. It's wide and it's deep. It infects and corrupts all people in every aspect of our lives. That hasn't changed one bit. Same as before the flood. I think very few of us truly get how bad total depravity really is. Yet it is vitally important that we do. We are very self-deceiving people where we can't see the sin that is in our lives and, and, and maybe we are easy, it's easy to spot in other people's lives, but other people put on a good show. We all put on a good show, don't we? To show how good and moral we are. But the total depravity, depravity is real. We must receive by faith what God says about our condition, the devastating diagnosis. This is how we must see ourselves and all the people around us in this world. Because if we fail to, to see and accept God's diagnosis, then we will fail to see the certainty of the judgment that God will bring. If we don't see how severe our depravity and sinfulness is, then we will fail to see the certainty of God's judgment that is to come and we will fail to receive the grace that saves. But if we do see the true state of the human condition, then we will know for sure that God's just judgment is coming. Now, the flood shows what God does in response to sin. Right? Great sin will be met with great judgment. And God's promise is that while this world remains, it won't go through another reset by the flood. Right? God has promised that very clearly in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. But this world will come to an end, right? So no flood while this world remains. But God also promises that one day this world will come to an end. Thereafter, there are no second chances. It will not be a reset then and then final judgment. It will be a total reformat. It will be a complete deletion of this world. In fact, the New Testament proves the certainty of the final judgment by referencing the flood. So in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, can you read that? That's pretty good. Okay. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just as one day God responded to great sin with great judgment by the flood, so another day He will bring the great judgment, the final judgment, with fire. Now, if final judgment means that creation will be destroyed, then how does God show His utter commitment to creation? Right? If He's going to destroy it, then how does He show His commitment to creation? He shows it by offering salvation right, through judgment. And once again, we go to Peter, 1 Peter this time. Uh, chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. Uh, that's the wrong reference at the bottom. It should be 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. And let's go to pull out some verses because it's a bit confusing. So I'll pull out the bits that make sense, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In the days of Noah, eight persons were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so we see here in the New Testament uh, a reflection that Noah was saved through the waters of judgment by the ark that God provided. And Peter here is saying that the waters of baptism points us to the same truth. Now, it's not that the physical act of baptism itself saves, as if we need an outer uh, physical cleansing, or it's not that the waters of baptism are magical in and of itself. It's that baptism symbolizes the reality of our union with Christ, right? where, where Christ is our ark of salvation. He's the lifeboat that saves us through judgment. Right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are brought safely through the judgment of death and into eternal life with Him in heaven. You see that, right? Just as the waters of baptism is a symbolic of being in Christ, our salvation ark, who carries us through the fires of judgment. Now, God also shows His commitment to us by salvation, by saving us out of corruption. That was the big problem, isn't it? The ongoing corruption of humanity after the flood, uh, the new humanity out of Noah, the inherent nature didn't change. That's going to be a problem, isn't it? However, in Christ, things are very different. And one last time, we go to 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, as Peter reflects on the new humanity that we are in Jesus Christ, we see that God has rescued us powerfully from our bondage to corruption. We're no longer prisoners, no longer slaves to sin. We've been given the breath of God, the Spirit of Christ, who is reforming us, recreating us from the inside out. That is the hope that we have. And one day, Christ will return to redeem His people and the whole of this broken creation and bring us into an eternity that will be utterly free from any corruption whatsoever. This is how we know that God is committed to creation and to us because God has given His very own Son to be our salvation. God has made sure that sin and corruption won't win. And so scriptures calls for us to imitate the faith of Noah. Right, imitate the faith of Noah. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, this is what it said. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How many of us know this passage? It's a beautiful passage about faith and Noah's faith, isn't it? Noah put his faith in God and in his word. He believed in God's word of judgment. He believed that the flood would come. And Noah believed by responding to God's instructions to build the ark. And then he got onto that boat 
before the first drop of rain started falling. That's what faith is, isn't it? It is taking God at His word about judgment and about salvation and then acting on that belief, acting on that belief. Now, I have no doubt that this would have cost Noah dearly to have faith in God and His word and to act on it. Can you imagine all the mockery that he would have faced? I'm sure we've heard about the, the reconstruction of what it might be like for those decades that, that Noah took to build that boat in, front, in his front yard. He would have been mocked like, what flood? Right? It's ridiculous. That covers the world? Yeah, sure. You know, maybe, maybe your pond out the back will get flooded for, from a big dose of rain, but the world being flooded? Why are you wasting all your time, Noah? And all your energy and all your money, all that money, right, to get that gopher wood, Right, all the effort to chop down trees and to gather all those. Oh, what a sight. Are you, you're creating a zoo here? That's ridiculous. You see, judgment didn't look likely then as it doesn't look likely today. At the time, just before the flood, people carried on living their lives, eating and drinking, working and playing, getting married and having kids, blissfully unaware and unbelieving that anything would ever change. Never change. To believe in judgment and to convince others that it's coming, it'll cost you. It'll cost me. You talk about judgment, you'll be ignored at best. People will just turn off their ears to you. But you'll also be mocked lightly and you'll be hated and you'll be silenced. And many people have when they bring up the judgment of God. To believe that Jesus is the only saviour, the only way of salvation, it'll cost you. It'll cost me. You'll be thought of as being misguided at best. But you'll also be called stupid. How ridiculous. People will find you offensive. You'll be cancelled. And you may even be killed. Some of us, perhaps unwilling missionaries, will go into countries one day where you may end up being killed the moment you open your mouth and preach Christ. Many have. You see, faith in God's word will cost you and me. And yet faith will cause us to keep calling out to people to be rescued. Calling out to people who will listen, right? Judgment is coming. Come into the lifeboat. Come to Jesus. You see, the flood is not cute and cheery, is it? The flood is not cute and cheery. It's no child's play because it warns us of the final judgment that is to come. But God, deeply saddened by sin, deeply committed to us, driven by divine love, gives us grace, gives us grace and offers us salvation through Jesus. So, leading our family into the lifeboat that is Jesus, that is the single most important thing that we will ever do, parents. Single most important thing, to lead our children into the lifeboat that is Jesus. Single most important thing for all of us, parents, children, friend, colleague, people you love, even people you hate, you, you seriously can't hate people enough that you would not offer them salvation from God's final judgment, will you? Will you be driven to call out to people, judgment is coming? Now, don't do it in some ridiculous way, like standing on a milk crate in the middle of the city, you know, being a crazy man. I find a way to be able to actually communicate the message in a way people can understand the judgment is coming. And then tell them about Jesus, their only saviour. The judgment that is to come 
is matched and overcome by the salvation that is offered by God. Let us be those who keep on calling other people to come to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who have grown up thinking of the, the flood and the Noah story as being cutesy and cheery and full of bright colors and rainbows, help us firstly to see just how tragic and horrific it really is. To see that the tragedy and the horror begins in the human condition. The devastating diagnosis that we've heard that sin is both extensive and intensive. It is widespread, impacting every single person in the face of this world for all of history, as well as intensive right into every part of who we are, our entire being, touched, stained, poisoned by sin in some way. And help us to see that for you as a just, moral and pure God will judge this sin with your judgment that is also extensive and intensive. Yet help us to see that you grieve having to do this. That as you look upon your creation, or look upon your children who have turned away from you, who have dishonored you, who have rebelled against you, who have hurt ourselves and others, it grieves you to your very heart. And from your divine love, you sent the flood to stop the rot, to wipe out the, the corruption and to start again. So that we today can read it and see that you will take our sins seriously and yet you will offer a way of salvation through the judgment. We thank you for your utter commitment that you gave to know that you fulfilled in Jesus. That through him, we can be saved. We will be saved through the judgment of fire that is to come. And so we pray for faith today, Father. We pray that you help us to believe in your word. Help us to believe that judgment is coming. Help us to believe in the salvation that you offer through Jesus. Help us to be those who call out to our families, call out to our friends, call out even to our enemies. That judgment is coming, but salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ. Help us to find ways, have the courage, have the wisdom, be persuasive. May your spirit powerfully work through our words to save more people on the salvation boat that is Christ. And then help us look forward to that new creation where there will be no corruption and sin, where there will be blessing only as we see you face to face. For this we pray in Jesus' name.